You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Dear Lord, we thank you for the time to gather together tonight and just continue our study in Job. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to enlighten us and just speak to us as we study uh, the conversations between these three friends and Job. And it's really easy to get bogged down here, but Lord, I pray that we'll be able to take something from it and apply it to our own lives as we deal with suffering and encounter those that are as well. And uh, just thank you again for this time, for this place. And uh, may all that we do bring honor and glory to your name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be in chapters 8 through 10. I hope you have read ahead, but we're going to... I thought last week went okay, so we're going to just we're gonna read, make sure that we read every, every verse in this book uh, as we study it. And so we're currently in this space where... You know, uh, we're dealing with the first round of speeches from Job's friends. People have finally spoken up. And last week we looked at the interaction between Job and Eliphaz. And we found that even though a friend may have the best of intentions, their attempt at help may actually hurt. And so it's imperative that we don't jump to conclusions or place too great an emphasis on our own experience. That's what Eliphaz did when we attempt to counsel others. It's real easy for us to say, I know exactly what you're feeling. I know exactly what you're going through even when that's not the case. So that's something that we need to avoid. Tonight we're going to look at uh, Job's second friend, Bildad, and see what he has to say. But I want you to think about, have you, ever, have you ever stopped to think about the oath that an individual has to take before they testify in court? So if they call you in and you have to testify before court, uh, the judge is going to ask you, or the bailiff or whoever is going to say, you know, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth so help you God. That's what they say. At least that's what they say on TV. I've never been in a courtroom. But uh, it, it's, it's an interesting statement because our initial thought or the initial takeaway from the court scene is that the judge wants the court, especially if there's a jury, he wants him to hear the truth and not the lies. Right? That's a given that you want to know the truth. But what's interesting in that oath is the phrase, the whole truth. It doesn't say just tell the truth. It says, it says the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Why is, why is that phrase there? It, it implies, when, when we have to say the whole truth, it implies that one can tell the truth while withholding some information. Like you can tell some truth, but not all of the truth. And so while technically, uh, at least a kid that was in trouble would have this defense, while technically you're not lying, right? an individual can still fail to paint the whole picture and if you don't paint the whole picture, if you don't tell the whole truth, then you put that jury or that judge at a disadvantage, right? They don't have, they don't have all the information to work with. And I think that's what we see happening in Job chapter 8 specifically, but in these three chapters. Because Bildad, what Bildad's going to do is he's going to tell Job the truth, but it's not the whole truth. And it does God and Job a huge disservice, his argument does. So let's read Job chapter 8. And then we'll break that down. It says, Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you go on saying these things? Your words are a blast of wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Since your children sinned against him, he gave them over to their rebellion. But if you earnestly seek God and ask the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, then he will move even now on your behalf and restore the home where your righteousness dwells. Then even in... If your beginnings were modest, your final days will be full of prosperity. For ask the previous generation and pay attention to what their fathers discovered. Since we were born only yesterday and know nothing, our days on earth are but a shadow. 
Will they not teach you and tell you and speak from their understanding? Does papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Do reeds flourish without water? While still uncut shoots, they would dry up quicker than any other plant. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. The hope of the godless will perish. His source of confidence is fragile. What he trusts is what he trusts in is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it doesn't stand firm. He grabs it, but it doesn't hold up. He's a well-watered plant in the sunshine. His shoots spread out over his garden. His roots are intertwined around a pile of rocks. He looks for a home among the stones. If he is uprooted from his place, it will deny knowing him, saying, I never saw you. Surely this is the joy of his way of life. Yet others will sprout from the dust. Look, God does not reject a person of integrity, and he will not support evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with a shout of joy. Your enemies will be clothed with shame. The tent of the wicked will no longer exist. So these are the words that Bildad has to speak at Job. And it's easy to see, again, right out the gate, that Job's friends, I'm going to repeat this over and over, but they've forgotten their, their self-proclaimed, what they said, not what somebody else put on them, what they said, they forgot their own self-proclaimed mission from chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to go together and we're going to provide comfort and support. And that's not what they're doing. Bildad's opening statement, there's no sympathy or there's no comfort. Instead, he calls Job's behavior and speech out by asking him, listen, man, how long are you going to stand there and blow hot air? That's what he says. Shut up already. I mean, that's, that's the real translation there. He's saying, shut up. I'm tired of hearing you. I'm going to share some truth with you, and what you need to do is listen. He says, shut your mouth and listen to what I have to say, because what I have to say is truth. The first thing he talks about in, in verses 3 through 7 is the justice of God. And he starts by asking rhetorical questions. Because he's told Job essentially already, just shut up. So he doesn't expect a response from Job, even though he's asking questions. He says, does God pervert justice? Does he pervert the right? In other words, what, he's, what Bildad's saying is God is a just God. He's going to do the right thing. In the face of wrong, there is nobody that gets off the hook. So just in case, if, you, if you're still not sure whether Bildad has any compassion or sympathy for Job, verse 4 basically tells us that he doesn't. Look at verse 4. He says, Since your children sinned against him, he gave them over to their rebellion. The, the only thing that he could do worse here is call out Job's children by name. He speaks in generalities. But remember what's happened to Job's children. A house just fell on him. Imagine if a house fell on your children. And then someone wants to come over... And they come over, quote-unquote, to provide you sympathy, but immediately shove it in your face and say, your kids, they got what they deserved. That's what is happening here. It's tragic. He tells Job, your kids have sinned against God, and they've only gotten what they deserve. And what Bildad's doing is he's using Job's worst fears against him. Remember back in verse 1 and 5, Job, he said, he's offering sacrifices, and he says, it may be that my children have sinned. He's saying, I'm going to cover them just to cover all my bases. And now Bildad's coming back and throwing that in his face. And Bildad is making the insinuation that there is no if here. Remember, Job said, it may be, just maybe, my children have sinned. And so I'm going to offer these sacrifices to make sure they're covered. And what Bildad's saying is, there is no maybe. We know that they did. That's why the house caved in on itself. Their sin is an apparent fact. And what you need to do, Job, is just deal with it. He goes on and he says, you're on the wrong side of God. And you're only getting what you deserve. That's what Bildad is telling Job. He's saying God is a just God. That's his whole premise. So why would you expect him to act otherwise? 
here's what you need to do, Job. You need to seek him. You need to plead for mercy. And what will happen is he'll come to your side and restore you. So, I already mentioned, Bildad's telling the truth. He's telling the truth. He's correct. God is a just God. But what he's saying is not the whole truth because it doesn't apply to Job's situation. There's a lot of assuming going on here, just like we saw with Eliphaz last week. None of the friends, Eliphaz didn't, and now we see Bildad. We'll see Zophar next week. None of them seem to care enough to find out the whole truth. Remember, they're, we're not, they're not privy to what we're privy to in the first two chapters of Job. They don't know. He also does something that Eliphaz did last week, and he, he starts to wander off into this prosperity gospel preaching, where he says, if you do this, then this is what God's going to do. If you return to him, he's going to restore you and bless you. And again, from an eternal perspective, Bildad's correct, but that theology, it doesn't necessarily apply to today. How does he know what God's going to do in the here and now? He can't, he can't back that up. We're going to see that God does restore Job at the end of the book, but it's not because of anything that Job has done. It's because that's God's choice, and that's God's purpose. So Bildad, he, or he harps on this idea that God is a just God, and that's true, but it doesn't necessarily apply to Job's situation. The second thing he does in verses 8 through 10 is now he shifts to experience and tradition. And he's going to place a high emphasis on these things. Last, last week, we saw Eliphaz placed a great deal of emphasis on personal experience. He said, these are the things that I've seen. We talked about that danger, about placing personal experience on a higher pedestal than Scripture. Who am I to think that I know everything based off what I've experienced? Who is any person? Everything that we, our foundation should be on Scripture and the Word of God, not on our personal experience. And this week, Bildad, he goes to another danger. And instead of personal experience, he leans on tradition. He tells Job, you need to listen to the wisdom of those that have come before you. He said, they lived a full, long life, and they filled us in. Have you not paid attention to that at all? Have you not paid attention to past wisdom? All of these are elders, what they've had to say. Have you not paid attention? They've lived a very long life compared to us. And they wrote the handbook. They wrote the guidebook. They wrote the instruction book. And you're not paying attention to it. If you want to understand your situation, why don't you just lean on their wisdom? And again, what do we see from Bildad? Does he provide truth? Yeah, there's some truth there. But does he provide the whole truth? No. Is wisdom and tradition valuable? Absolutely. There's some value there. But good wisdom and tradition shouldn't serve as our ultimate guide and our ultimate source. And even worse than that, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot of stepping out to understand that there's plenty of poor worldly wisdom and flat-out wrong tradition that exists. I can't remember... I, I talk about so many similarity things that I talk about up here in my classroom. So I can't remember if I shared this last week or if it was in class this week when I shared it. But so tonight, because I'm a crazy man, I'm going to go out tonight and I'm going to mark the field. So I don't have to do it tomorrow when I have to go get a bus because we got a game. And so I'm going to set a stake at home plate. And I'm going to pull a string all the way to the fence. And I'm going to paint a foul line. But if my stake is off just a hair... By the time I get paint that line all the way out of the fence, it's gonna be if it's off one degree, it's gonna be off five feet by the time I get three hundred feet down the line. So if tradition 
is off just a hair. And we travel a substantial amount of time, now we're way off course. And there's plenty of examples of that. There's some truth in this today, and I spoke about this, I think, last week or a couple weeks ago. But it wasn't long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a handful of Southern Baptist churches that came under fire for allowing members of the LGBT community to become full-fledged members of the church, voting members. Should those individuals be in churches? Absolutely. Should they be hearing the gospel? Absolutely. But should we stamp full-fledged member on them and, and basically what you're doing is they're wearing a beauty pageant banner across their chest, walking out in the community saying, this is what a church represents. Should we be doing that? No. But we have churches that are steering onto that course, and that what they're doing is they are establishing a tradition. And so if we go 50 to 100 years down the road, what does that look like? And here, what you see is you see Bildad saying, we should look at tradition no matter what. Well, if it steers off course, and that's, that is our foundation, then we're in a heap of trouble really quick. Yeah, that's where we are right now. In, in multiple, multiple situations, in multiple examples. Our doctrine, our theology, and our application. All three. Our doctrine, our theology, and our application of those things have to be grounded in the Word of God and not the traditions of men. Because if they're, if they're grounded in the tradition of men, then they're grounded in the tradition of error. Bildad ends his, his speech, and he talks about those who reject God. And he, he basically is talking about this premise, do those who reject God prosper? And in verse 13, to the close of the chapter... Bildad, his speech, he attempts to give Job an object lesson and he uses a plant as an example. He says, if you've got a plant and it's absent of water, a water source, it can't be sustained. If it's not getting fed, it's not going to grow. Even if it's flowering and in good health, if you take the water away, it's going to die real quickly. And what Bildad is trying to say to Job is if, if you take an individual who forgets God, he's just like that plant. There's no hope. He's doomed to perish, and it's not long before he withers. Why? Because without God, there's no true confidence, right? Everything man clings to is temporary. He compares this trust to a spider's web. How many of you have walked into an old barn or an old room, and you've got spider webs, and all you have to do is wave a hand, and you can knock them out of the way? It's easily torn down. There's no real substance. That's what Bildad's saying. Without God, without a faith in God, there's no true substance. What he's painting a picture of here without knowing it is the double-minded man that's present in Job. He's unstable in all his ways. He has no true foundation. And it's only a matter of time until that individual comes to ruin. This truth that Bildad speaks, it also comes with an implication. And what he's saying, so he tells the story, and he tells the story basically to insinuate to Job or imply to Job, hey, dummy, you're that plant. You're the one that's forgotten God. And now you're dealing with the ruin. You're the man that has no true confidence. You're the man that has no true foundation. You've forgotten God, and what you're getting is you're just enjoying the fruit of your labors. You're getting what was due you. Many have, has come, many have come before you, and many are going to come after you. But you need to realize who you are. He spends his entire speech blasting Job, but he attempts to recover it at the end. He tells Job that God will surely not reject a blameless man. 
nor take the hand of those who sow evil. Those who follow after God will be blessed. Again, this seems to be more of this prosperity gospel with a huge implication. He said he's, his whole idea here, he's being somewhat subtle, and we're going we're to discover as we go, there's a second round of speeches, and there's a third round of speeches. And each time, they get more intense, and the subtlety goes out the window. Right? He's, he's still speaking in nuances here, and he's not directly coming at Job. But here's what he's trying to say. He says, If God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He's saying, and God's a just God. He's not going to reject a blameless man, and he's not going to take the hand of an evildoer. So guess what, Job? You must not be blameless. Look at all this stuff you're dealing with. If God's just... Right? And if he's not going to reject the blameless man, well, it sure looks to me like you're, you're in the middle of being rejected. So that must mean you're not blameless. And if God won't take the hand of an evildoer and you're wandering around talking all this foolishness and saying, where are you, God? Well, if he's not here, you must be that evildoer. You must be that evil man, Job. That's what he's saying without saying it. And again, Bildad has spoken some truth here, but it's truth that doesn't apply, and it's not the whole truth. I think I shared this quote with you last week from Charles Spurgeon. It says, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Bildad's almost right, but he's not exactly right. It doesn't apply to Job. Job comes back in chapter 9. Let's read it. He says, then Job answers Bildad. He says, yes, I know what you've said is true. So again, even Job recognizes there's some truth here. But how can, this is a key question. But how can a person be justified before God? If one wanted to take him to court, he could not answer God once in a thousand times. God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? He removes mountains without their knowledge, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place so that its pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine and seals off the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He makes the stars, the bear, Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the southern sky. He does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. If he passed by me, I wouldn't see him. If he went by, I wouldn't recognize him. If he snatches something, who can stop him? Who can ask him, what are you doing? God does not hold back his anger. Rahab's assistants cringe in fear beneath him. How then can I answer him or choose my arguments against him? Even if I were in the right, I couldn't answer. I could only beg my judge for mercy. If I summoned him and he answered me, I do not believe he would pay attention to what I said. He batters me with a whirlwind and multiplies my wounds without cause. He doesn't let me catch my breath, but fills me with bitter experiences. If it is a matter of strength, look, he is the powerful one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Even if I were in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, my mouth would declare me guilty. Though I am blameless, I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. If it's all the same, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When catastrophe brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is handed over to the wicked. He blindfolds its judges. If it isn't he, then who is it? My days fly by faster than a runner. They flee without seeing any good. They sweep by like boats made of papyrus, like an eagle swooping down on its prey. If I said I will forget my complaint, change my expression, and smile, I would still live in terror of all my pains. 
I know you will not acquit me, since I will be found guilty. Why should I struggle in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, then you dip me in a pit of mud, and my own clothes despise me. For he is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There is no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me, so his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but that is not the case. I am on my own. There's a lot going on right there. Job answers Bildad generously by saying, again, he recognizes, hey, there's some truth in what you told me. God is a just God. But that doesn't mean that Job's still not frustrated because he feels mistreated. He still clings to this belief that he's blameless, and yet he perceives to be in the midst of extreme judgment. So he's trying to balance these two things. I know who I am. I know that I am blameless. You recognize that he's spoken a couple of times previous to this. If, what have I done? If I've sinned, let me know what I've done. He's dealing with extreme judgment, and he's trying to wrestle through that. If I'm blameless, why am I dealing with this? And he, if he can't escape the judgment of God, which is what he points out here, God is all-powerful. I can't escape his judgment. Who can he? How can anybody? How can anybody escape God? Several times in his reply to Bildad, Job speaks of the power and the might of God. In verse 4, he talks about God being wise and mighty. In verse 5, he removes mountains. In verse 6, he shakes the earth. In verse 7, he commands the sun and seals up the stars. In verse 8, he talks about stretching out the heavens and trampling the sea. In verse 9, he made the constellations. And in verse 10, he does great things in number. He's talking a lot about creation here, and he's also talking about all the mighty things that God can do. If you think about a mountain, God has the ability to remove the mountain. He doesn't ask the mountain's permission. He just moves it because he's the one that created it. He shakes the earth. He tells the sun when to rise, when to go down. He put the stars exactly where he wanted to put them. There's nothing random there. He put them there. Job recognizes his weakness and his place in comparison to the might and majesty of God. He clings to his innocence. He doesn't see a way to contend with such a powerful God. Again, God is so powerful, how is anybody supposed to contend with him? In, in verse 13, Job claims that God will not turn back his anger. It's interesting that Job feels, again, why is God against me? Job doesn't understand what's happening to him. He feels like God's against me. Again, he's not privy to what's going on behind the scenes. Job doesn't know about the heavenly court. He doesn't know about God entertaining Satan and giving him permission to go after Job. And if you put yourself in Job's position, right, in his own defense, it'd be hard to imagine a purpose, experience what Job experienced, and then try to wrestle with, there's a purpose in this? How is there a purpose in this? I've just lost everything. I've lost all my possessions. I've lost all my children. My wife won't even acknowledge my presence or listen to me. She thinks I'm crazy. How is there purpose in that? How is there purpose in such heartbreak, loss, and pain? Job describes himself as being crushed. He's unable to get his breath. Remember how messenger after messenger after messenger came to Job immediately. I mean, in Scripture it says, before the first guy finished, here came the second. Before he finished, here came the third. He doesn't even have time to gather his breath. He states in verse 19, he says, If this is a contest of strength, I lose. That's what he says. He doesn't say, I'm going to wrestle and contend with God. Why? What's the point? If it's a contest of strength, I lose. Because who's stronger than God? What Job is describing is a hopeless, hopeless, hopeless situation. 
And that leads us to the major question that Job poses in this chapter in verse 2. How can a man be in the right before God? How can a man be justified? If we come down to verses 20 to 22, Job seems to push back on Bildad's theology. He says, Even if I were in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, my mouth would declare me guilty. Though I am blameless, I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. It is all the same. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Bildad don't want to hear that. Eliphaz don't want to hear that. Because remember, their whole theology is based on this doctrine of retribution that just simply says, the wicked are going to get what they deserve and God's going to bless the righteous. And Job clearly says, I don't buy that because of what I'm experiencing. I know who I am, and it's apparent that God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. He's the all-powerful. So how can, we be, how can we be innocent and guilty at the same time? That's what Job's trying to wrestle with. How can you be innocent and guilty at the same time? Remember, early on, Job was described as a blameless and upright man. He was described as a unique man, one that God took delight in. To the point that it's clearly stated, God clearly states, there is no other man like Job. He's completely unique. He's blameless and upright, but he's not perfect. He wasn't sinless. Job doesn't make the argument that he is sinless. The argument that he's making is, I don't believe that I've done anything that warrants the judgment that I've received. It's almost like Job saying, listen, I understand that that light turned red right as I was going under it. Okay? Maybe I ran the red light. But you took me to court and I got life in prison for running the red light. Anything that I could potentially have done doesn't match the punishment that I've been given. That's what Job's saying. That's what he means when he says, though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. Again, he's pushing back on Bildad's theology by claiming that God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. In one sense, Job's saying that bad things can and have, do bad things can and do happen to people that are perceived as good or blameless. But in the same argument, Job's also making the, the claim that that nobody's good. Ultimately, nobody's good. If you stand before God, there's no way you could defend yourself. That's what Job's saying. And his argument falls in line with what we see in the New Testament in 1 John 1, 8 and Romans 3.23. All have fallen short of God's standard. If we say that we have no sin, we're only lying to ourselves. Job recognizes that. He could defend himself to no avail, even if he could get an audience with God. He, there's, a, there's a large part of Job that says, God, get down here. I want to talk to you. What the heck's going on? But he knows even if he came down and I got the audience, he knows that he can't defend himself. He recognizes that God is the ultimate judge. He's the one with the power and authority. All Job could hang his hat on, this is key, all Job could hang his hat on was the mercy of God. And all Bildad's hanging his hat on is God's justice. So Bildad's talking about justice, and Job requires mercy. And the whole truth, remember, we're getting some truth here, but the whole truth is both are necessary. Both of them are necessary. In verse 33, again, you see this uh, mediator terminology. Job longs for an arbiter, a mediator, speaking on his behalf. The beauty of these chapters, from our perspective, is that both men are correct. 
and God's ultimate plan through Jesus will fulfill both of their arguments. Exodus 34, we spoke about Exodus this morning. I think I could put Exodus in about any sermon possible because there's so much in Exodus. But in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God declares exactly who he is. He says, The Lord of the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What do we see right there? We see mercy and we see justice. Coexisting. That's the character of God. He's patient, slow to anger. He does abound in steadfast love. He does forgive sin, but he's also a just God. So what Bildad's saying is true, and what Job is, is requires is true. God's character forces us to entertain the same question that Job poses. How can a man be right before God? How can God be both merciful and just? Can those qualities coexist? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. A just God cannot let sin go unpunished. And although Job didn't know of any blatant sin in his life, he recognized that he wasn't perfect. If he, if he didn't recognize that, then he wouldn't ask the question, what have I done? Tell me. I don't know that I've done anything, but it's obvious apparently maybe I have. He recognizes he's not a perfect man. This is the place that he finds himself in, and it was pure misery. That's why he longed for a mediator, someone who could argue on his behalf, and that's exactly what God provided to us in Christ. The longer, the, the more, this, I will confess to you, this is the deepest dive I've taken in Job. And the more I read and the more I read, I, I wonder to myself, is the whole point of the book of Job to point us to Jesus? It may have been written thousands of years ago for people to really wrestle with, with who Jesus is after the fact that he came. It's pointing, it's pointing to him the whole way. It's pointing to this mediator that Job is begging for. In John 3.16, First, God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent Jesus to be the mediator that Job is begging for. But in order to fulfill that role, he had to be perfect and Jesus was just that. He was perfect. He was 100% God. He was 100% man. And that was a necessity that allowed him to take on the punishment that our sin deserved. He was and he is the mediator that Job longed for. 1 John 2.2. 2. Let's read that real quick. I didn't throw that in here. I'm going to have to look it up. 1 John 2.2. 2. He himself... This says the atoning sacrifice, but I prefer propitiation. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for only ours, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus was the propitiation, the wrath-bearer for our sin. He's the one that bore the wrath that we were deserved. And here's the deal. What Bildad's saying and what Job is saying is fulfilled in the cross because Jesus' sacrifice fulfills God's characteristics of both mercy and justice. They coexist perfectly on the cross. And what was Job's question? How can a man be right before God? It's by Jesus' sacrifice alone that a man can be in the right before God. So right here in Job chapter 9 is a shadow of the gospel that's to come. And the good news is it has come for us. Job finishes up in chapter 10 and we see uh, another prayer. In 10 it says, I am disgusted with my life. 
I will give vent to my complaint and speak into the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not declare me guilty. Let me know why you prosecute me. Is it good for you to oppress, to reject the work of your hands and favor the plans of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as a human sees? Are your days like those of a human? Are your years like those of a man that you look for my iniquity and search for my sin, even though you know that I'm not wicked and that there is no one who can rescue from your power? Your hand shaped me and formed me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Please remember that you form me like clay. Will you now return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and wove me together with bones and tendons. You gave me life and faithful love, and your care has guarded my life. Yet you conceal these thoughts in your heart. I know that this was your hidden plan. I want you to remember that verse. I know that this was your hidden plan. If I sin, you would notice and would not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. And even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am filled with shame and have drunk deeply of my affliction. If I am proud, you hunt me like a lion and again display your miraculous power against me. You produce new witnesses against me and multiply your anger toward me. Hardships assault me wave after wave after wave. Why did you bring me out of the womb? I should have died and never been seen. I wish I had never existed, but had been carried from the womb to the grave. Are my days not few? Stop it. Leave me alone so that I can smile a little before I go to a land of darkness and gloom, never to return. It is a land of blackness like the deepest darkness, gloomy and chaotic, where even the light is like the darkness. So again, in chapter 10, we get more pure honesty from Job. He's struggling with his affliction, and he desperately wants to understand his situation. He continues to ask, why have I been born? In other words, he doesn't see any purpose. What's the purpose here? Job's feelings are understandable. He continues to beg for mercy. Just leave me alone so I can die. But again, through it all, he never turns his back on God. Think about all that we've heard from Eliphaz and from Bildad up to this point. And we're going to bring this point up again. But how many times have we heard Eliphaz and Bildad speak to God? We've heard them speak of God, but we haven't heard them speak to God. And Job, on the other hand, he petitions God directly. He desires understanding from God, not from men. And we should do the same. The big takeaway from this chapter is what I just referenced you back to in verse 13. Job says to God, I know that this was your hidden plan. Job seeks God's purpose even when he can't see it. Think about the number of people that you know that don't see a purpose in what's going on in their life, that don't see a purpose in the world. Some have given up any hope of purpose when they encounter some difficulty. But Job, on the other hand, recognizes that God has a purpose. He even recognizes it's hidden because I can't figure it out. But there's something going on there. You have a purpose. Even though Job can't understand it or see it, he knows that God acts with a purpose. We see hints of the man, again, that we saw in Job 1.5, where he says, It may be that my children have sinned, as he looks at his own life. He wants to be in right standing before God, and in his affliction, he continues to move toward God and not away from him. That's an example that we would all do well to follow, to recognize that in everything, God has a purpose and he's working. And in everything, man, you you think about John 6. And the words of Peter. You know, Jesus has just performed miracle. Crowds 
upon crowds upon crowds are following Jesus. Jesus throws out some teaching. They don't like what they hear, and they all scatter. And ain't nobody left around. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, Hey, boys, uh, you guys leaving too? And Peter looks back at him and says, Where are we going to go? It's the same thing that Job's saying right here. Where am I going to go? Man, this really stinks. And I don't really understand it. But where am I going to go? We've got to recognize that God has a purpose. And when difficulty comes our way, running doesn't do us any good. The only thing that would do us any good is to run to God. So what's the personal implications tonight? The first one is don't misrepresent who God is because eternity hangs in the balance. Bildad presented Job with truth, but he didn't represent him with the whole truth. He focused on God's requirement for justice while neglecting any mention of God's love and mercy. And as a result, what Bildad did was he misrepresented God. And as if we interact with the loss in the same manner, then they're going to miss the gospel. To place too great an emphasis on God's justice will push the lost away, while pushing, placing too great an emphasis on God's love and mercy, it'll provide the lost with a false sense of security. Those two quali- character qualities, love and mercy, I mean mercy and justice, they have to coexist. You can't place too great an emphasis on one or the other, or you're missing out on what the gospel really is. That's the whole truth, that God is completely just and full of grace and mercy. That's what Jesus demonstrates. And our job as representatives is not to misrepresent who God is and not misrepresent what the gospel is. The second key implication is that a man can only be right before God when he's covered by the blood of Christ. Job's very own words represent and demonstrate that none are good. How we view ourselves, our own personal defense before God, it's not going to stand. God knows who we truly are. And in other words, the argument that, well, I'm a good person. I mean, if you've witnessed to people, we talk to people at the mission. Man, that's number one response. Well, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. (laughs) It doesn't hold water. My comparison of myself to other people doesn't hold water. All that matters is the comparison of myself to God's standard. And while Job wasn't being judged, his story does teach us that mankind standing on its own merit cannot be right before God. Job needed a mediator just like we need a mediator. And the good news is that God did provide that mediator in Jesus. His death and sacrifice on the cross is what satisfies our sentence. Job asked that question, how can a man be right before God? And the answer is Jesus. The last thing is that what we just talked about, God has a purpose in all things. There's going to be times in your life where things don't make sense. Pain, suffering, loss don't make sense. You can struggle. You can really struggle to find purpose. You can ask the questions, well, how can God use this? How can good come from this? Again, I think I referenced this before, but go back to Genesis and the story of Joseph. Man, that guy went through some struggles for an extended amount of time. And he himself recognized what you meant, evil God made of good. You threw me in a pit, man. You tried to get me killed. I got drug off. Then I got thrown in prison. And look, now I saved your life, bunch of punks. What you meant for evil, God used for good. 
Job's hurt and his pain was real. His confusion was real. But even in the middle of that, he recognized that God had a purpose. If we only see God in the good and refuse to recognize his presence and his purpose in the bad, then what we do is we place limits on God. And the truth is that our God is limitless. He's always working, even when we can't see it. As believers, there's going to be times when we must place what we want to the side and trust in what God is doing in our lives, that he's working for our good. It's not about, as painful as it can be to say, it's not about what you want. It's about God's purpose. And it takes a very wise person. That's why you've got to be grounded in the book. Because it takes a very wise person to recognize that. To recognize, hey, this isn't what I want. This is not what I set out for. But if it's what God's got for me, then it's what I need. And and your question in that situation should not be, why? Why, God? Your question should be, what am I supposed to learn from this? Because I'm, I'm expecting that five years from now you're wanting me to be able to use this. So what am I supposed to learn so I can put it to work? That's the question we need to be asking. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn from, from Bildad. And Lord, we thank you that at the core of your character is both justice and mercy. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ, the the mediator that he is on our behalf and the salvation that we have through him. Lord, I pray that as we go out and as we interact with the world that we represent you with the whole truth, not just some truth, but with whole truth that would shine a light on the true gospel and bring people to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.